Today, I speak with Professor John Kaldner of the Rhodes College Religious Studies Department. Professor Kaldner has published many books about the Abrahamic religions, paying particular attention to the overlap between the Quran and the Bible. Among his published works are How the Quran Interprets the Bible and Islam, What Non-Muslims Should Know. While he does not describe himself as a formal Muslim, Professor Kaldner seeks a pluralistic understanding of religious faith and finds the Islamic notion of submission particularly meaningful in living a good contemplative life. In today's discussion, Aidan Smith joins us in our examination of Professor Kaltner's life, his religious beliefs, scripture, gratitude, love, and the meaning of life. I usually start out talking with my guests about their backgrounds and where they grew up because I think that says a lot about where their life goes in the future. Where they are right now is for the most part determined by where they were before. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up, where you lived, et cetera? Sure. I'm from New York originally, grew up in, it was born in Brooklyn, uh, lived there for just a couple of years when I was very young. And then we moved to Queens. So I grew up in Queens, New York and have three siblings. I'm the oldest of four, but we're really close in age. My brother's the youngest and he's uh, five years younger. So, so yeah, grew up in, in Queens and got into the city quite a bit. And then when I was in high school, we moved out to Long Island. So I lived out there for, for half of high school. And then I went to college in upstate New York. And so spent pretty much all of my formative years in New York city or, you know, upstate. Yeah. You're just like a New York guy through and through. Did you like New York city? I did. And I do. I still love to go try to get back at least once a year. I don't have too many relatives in the, in the New York area anymore, but, um, but yeah, I do. I like New York. It's a great city. And I think it was a good place to grow up. I felt like I was exposed to a lot and well, a lot of opportunities there to to learn about a lot of different uh, ways of life and people. So that was back when New York was pretty different though, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was say high school years, that's when New York city in particular was really struggling. There was the famous headline in the New York uh, daily news, Ford to city dropped dead. Gerald Ford, who was the president at the time, that would have been in the in the mid seventies, uh, basically told New York was suffering a financial crisis. He basically said, Hey, you guys are on your own, drop dead. And that was, uh, that was basically it. So, so New York went through some hard times when I was, when I was in high school and, and into college and really Giuliani of all people sort of turned it around a bit when he became the, the DA for a while there. Did you feel the impact of the New York city scares at all? Or were you, were you pretty much above it or past it at that point? The scares of just kind of the scares of New York city falling into bankruptcy or anything going wrong with it. Like that famous headline that you were talking about, did that affect you at all? Not particularly. I mean, we, my, I grew up in a blue collar family, you know, my dad was a civil servant and we always were comfortable, certainly weren't well off, but I wouldn't say that we had any broke. He may have had concerns. I didn't at that point in my life that we were tottering on the edge during like, yeah. And you said you had some relatives that 
you don't have many relatives in New York City anymore. So can you tell us like where your siblings ended up going, what they're up to? Yeah, I had, well, when I was in college, it was actually the summer before my senior year in college, my family moved to Florida. My parents being New Yorkers of a certain age and generation, Florida was always the dream. So they decided to uh, make that move down there while I was in college. And so they all, my three siblings went with them. I did not. And then I spent a little bit of time living in Florida later on, but they settled there and then eventually moved out. So I have a sister who still lives. My mother is still alive. She lives in Florida. My sister lives nearby. And then I have another sister who is in the Philadelphia area and a brother who is in Fort Myers, a little south of where my mother lives in the Tampa Bay area. Very different from New York. It is. Although there's so many New Yorkers in Florida. Sometimes you feel like it. Really? Oh, yeah. Especially that part, the Tampa Bay area is just full of Northeasterners. Like people that retire there? Yeah, retire or at a certain point just say, you know, I'm sick of the weather or whatever. I want to move to a place with that's warmer. And so they end up settling there. So I want to ask about your relationship with your parents at the time, because I feel like as a religious studies professor, the impact and the role that parents play in every, almost every single religion. I mean, descriptions of God as a mother, descriptions of nature, or I'm sorry, descriptions of God as a father, descriptions of nature as a mother, et cetera, the relationship between mother Mary and her son. So what was your relationship like with your dad and your mom? We had a really tight family. We still do. Um, they were, again, we're really close in age, uh, about four and a half years separate us, the four of us. And so we're typical kids of that age always getting into trouble, fighting and that sort of thing. And my parents were very, I wouldn't say hands off, but they've always just, they always encouraged us to just, just be happy was like the, probably the, the thing we heard the most. I don't care what you, what you end up doing in life, just be good and be happy was, was it. And so, and they were always there for us if we, you know, needed any advice or lost our way, which occasionally would, would happen. They were there to kind of help us uh, get back on track. But, but all in all, I think our parents were, and my mother continues to be someone who just really, again, is very supportive and not really trying to force any of us into one way or another. And so the fact that over the years, I mean, and I can say from my experience, very, very few siblings and families, I think have stayed as close connected as we have. And I think part of it is because the way our parents treated us to and valued each of us for being who we each are in a different way. So I think in that sense that we've been just, as we've grown older and grown up, we've just continued to sort of follow that model. Were your parents religious? Yeah, I think probably my mother is more religious than my dad was, although I'd say my dad was more spiritual in the sense, sort of a quester, maybe more than anything else. He was always reading and sort of pursuing different avenues of spirituality and that sort of thing. Whereas my mom, I think was more traditionally religious person. Where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Hey, probably more toward my dad's end of things. I mean, he was. I think he's, he was interested very much in sort of the asking the questions, but I don't, th he certainly wasn't an academic, so I don't, I don't, I don't think he asked maybe the same sort of questions that I, that I asked, but, but probably less religious in the traditional sense. I, I am 
more my father's son than my mother's friend. If I could just jump in real quick, do you think there is something to that, that sort of dogmatic uh, religious affinity that people have? Do you think there's something that is necessary about it? Or do you think just the spirituality is? I think it, I think it's something that's really ultimately, it's a personal choice or one's, one's preference, depending on who one is. And again, the sort of questions that someone's asking, I can see a real value in organized religion and the role that it plays in people's lives, the role that it's played in my life at times, just in terms of giving a certain structure and sense of meaning, but it's never been enough for me. And in some ways as I've gotten older, it's more, I tend to push back at it and resent it a little bit more than, than maybe I did in the past or maybe others, you know, others would. Is that something that you've always been into that, that like pushing back against sort of dogmas and rules? Like, I, I'm curious when you started to get interested in religious studies specifically. Yeah, I think it is. I, I've always been someone who is interested in questions, asking questions. And so I think inevitably someone who is a questioner is going to, if you don't get answers that are completely satisfying or persuasive, you're going to sort of say, well, maybe, maybe we should try doing things a little differently, right? Or why are we doing this? And so I'd say my, maybe my personal spirituality is a byproduct of that because like I'm, I'm Certain as, as a young boy, I can remember just really asking a lot of questions, curious and, and interested. So probably that those sort of questions, the, the questioning nature might be one of the ways that could manifest itself is in, in interest in, in spirituality or matters that are more metaphysical and less hard and less certain and clearly defined. Carl Jung talks about in his essay, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, that the modern man tends to trial on a lot of different religions, sort of like your father from the way that you described him. But a lot of people in search of answering these questions that you're talking about that don't really have answers, they'll try out a lot of different avenues to get there, to get the answers that they want. Would you describe yourself as that modern man that Carl Jung describes? I don't know if I would say that I tried or that I have tried a lot of different avenues, I think I probably have tended to stay more or less on the same avenue, but I've sort of made detours off on the side or have investigated some of the side streets more than that actually have pursued them or, or gone down them. Cause I took, I took your life class, second semester of my freshman year. And I remember it was COVID set. Uh, yes. That was, that was a huge mess, but <laughs> and I, I remember particularly being difficult for you. So I'm I don't remember it. that. Okay. Oh, good. What you're talking. Good. Good. I felt bad, but let me, let me check and see what grade you got. But I remember during that class, we would talk about a lot of different intricacies of Abrahamic religions and the way that like one little phrase can change <clears throat> a religion and there's different sects that come off of it. So like Shia and what's the other Sunni, Sunni and Shia Muslims have a debate about certain phrases in the Quran. And it's the same thing in Christianity, like Martin Luther finds certain things in the Bible that he finds a problem with. Do you think there's merit to that, that we should keep asking what these phrases mean? And uh, if so, where do you fall on the spectrum of 
reading it as a live and living text versus how the authors had intended it. Yeah, I do think it's important to call you, I've already self-identified as a questioner, so obviously I can think it's important to, to ask questions, but I, I also do think it's important not to simply accept, again, things as they've always been simply because that's the way they've always been, that it is important to, to ask questions. And I think as a, someone who works with texts a lot, especially religious texts, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely essential that we understand or we, as best we can, or try to understand why, where a particular text comes from, right? What was, why was it originally written? To whom was it written? What purpose is it serving before we simply take it on as our own? I'm not saying that texts can't speak to people in the modern day, but I think one of the real problems, especially when you talk about religious literature, the Bible and the Quran in particular is that people tend to read these things as if they're, they were written for them with them in mind. And I think it's always important that we remember that when you read something like the Bible or the Quran, you're reading other people's mail and that you have to always be aware of that and try to at least acknowledge that and maybe ask those questions about, well, whose, whose mail am I reading and what can we learn about those people as a result of the, 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 the eavesdropping that's going on now as, as, as we read it. And that requires like. I, I think a certain kind of empathy too, if you're going to get religious significance from the text without applying it to your own life, like we're even acknowledging that it was meant for someone else. I think you have to sort of broaden your horizons a little bit because I, my inclination would always be to, to read the text as if it was speaking to me, but that's like you said, so clearly no. Oh, it's, it's a very, it, it's, it's kind of a, an occupational hazard of being a human being, I think, is that we tend to always kind of see things from our own perspective and what's in it for me is, is very often when, in fact, I think it's, and, and in some way I'm, I'm a fall victim to that as much as the next person. But, but again, I think, especially when you're dealing with something that is as, as potentially volatile, right. And as, you know, controversial as religion and religious texts and the roles that they play in people's lives, I think it's always, uh, important to start from that premise that, yeah, this is not this, we have this text today, but it was not written for today, which may, again, which doesn't mean it can't speak to us today, but if we think that's the sole purpose of it, I think then we're setting ourselves up for some potential problems. So do you see a problem with the idea that the Bible and or the Quran was divinely inspired by God? Cause it seems to me that if, if it were to be divinely inspired by God, it would transcend a certain culture. It would, it would have deeper meaning for all human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless we change, uh, this is something I always try to push students on and myself on is to wonder if maybe we need to ask the prior question, question, well, what do we mean when we say something's divinely inspired, right? And if we have a certain view of what divine inspiration is, do we need to maybe reformulate it or reform it and rethink it as a result of, or for whatever reason, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't fit the world that we live in. Very often we tend to inherit these, these beliefs and ideas and terms about things like inspiration, revelation that in, in antiquity would have meant one thing and maybe in the modern world, we need to, to, to rethink them so that is it possible that you know, the very act of interpretation of a text, right? So it was written for, for people centuries ago, right? That was its original purpose. That was the original revelation, if you'd like. But 
over time, as later communities and individuals are reading these texts and they find themselves in different circumstances, the texts take on different meanings and they take on other meanings. And is it possible that the way that maybe that's part of this whole revelatory process, right? That, that it isn't a one-time thing, but that texts morph and, and their meanings change over time, but that maybe what's being revealed in a text today, and I'm purposely not even using the God language, right? That, that it's, it, it's what's being revealed to us today is, is a very different message than what, what we've been revealed to people of the ancient world. Seems like that would require applying these texts to your own life though, right? Because if, if it is sort of a living text that has a revelation to come, that requires you to continue to question the text, continue to try to interpret it into your own life and try to apply it to the times. So I can see how in Leviticus, for example, right? Like homosexuality is wrong and we should, I don't, I don't even know, like stone homosexuals, according to Leviticus 2000 years ago. Now it's pretty evident that that's, that rule is immoral in and of itself. Like it's completely flip-flop to the point where that is an immoral act to stone somebody. So how, how do you make sense of these intricacies within the books that have just sort of changed with the culture. Yeah. Does it change, does it change the meaning of the text? I guess is what I'm asking. I think it depends. It doesn't change the literal meaning of text, right? But, but it could change the context could shape how you interpret and understand the text, right? Because the same, the same Bible that that says that, that the, uh, the gay person should be stoned also says that anyone who curses their father or mother should be put to death. Well, if we were to follow that, this would be a pretty empty world right now. So, so we know, in a sense, we, we realize, okay, that text we shouldn't take seriously because come on, no, you're not going to, if you, if you get upset at your mom or your dad, you shouldn't be put to death. Right. But then we don't apply that same logic to other texts when, as you say, we're now we're in a different world than, than the ancient world. Where who knows for any number of reasons, maybe the prohibition against same-sex relations was 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 called to put in place. We live in a very very different world now, and why you know why don't we apply the same principles to 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 texts that they address issues like homosexuality? There's some interesting things going on in in uh, the study of the Quran, for example, where more and more, especially, and this is primarily being driven by say the feminist. Movement within Islam that more and more the, the the Quran, like the Bible, is a very misogynistic text in some ways. It's patriarchal, right? But as more and more women and and people who are sympathetic to feminist interpretations are reading it, they're beginning to ask certain questions and coming to very very different ways of thinking about those texts. So very often they'll distinguish between certain texts. The, the Quran is very egalitarian in some places between in terms of the relationship between men and women. But then it's very sexist in other places. And so more and more people are saying, well, we need to really distinguish between those parts of the text that are relevant for all times and places and those that are more context specific. So a text that talks about men and women being created at the same time and are to be treated equally and very egalitarian in their spirit, those are the texts that these people say that we need to, you know, be basing our decisions in our lives on today, rather than the ones that say, well, if you're, if your wife, if you're unhappy with your wife, first speak to her, then if that doesn't work, deny her sex. And then as a last resort, 
you can hit her. That's basically what the Quran says. Chapter 434. These people who interpret the text in this way would say, whoa, wait a minute. That's not a text that speaks to us today. It's those other ones that we want to look at. That's a text that might've worked in the seventh century Arabia, but you know, it doesn't, doesn't cut it today. So the, so the, the act and the process of interpretation is really, the, you know, the critical. And we do again, we do it with the Bible all the time, right? We don't, we don't kill kids who talk back to mom and dad, right? But unfortunately people have a hard time distinguishing and realizing that, well, you can apply that same, that same principle or interpretive process to issues like homosexuality. But it seems like the, the, the problem is that as soon as you start opening it up to that much interpretation, or like context, it breaks the authority of the, uh, the, the religion itself. Like, is, isn't it all predicated on the religion being the only authority? And I know there's probably more sophisticated ways to think about that, but that seems like what people are objecting to. And they say, oh, you don't get to change this just because it mm -hmm. doesn't fit the times. Yeah, I think part of it, that's a great question. And I think you're quite right. I think part of it is that, that again, there was this literal notion of, well, this is God's word and we don't mess with it. But in fact, we are, we are messing with it. We've always messed with it, but throughout history, I think the people who have the biggest issues with it are those who are in power and authority and see themselves as the authority figures. So it's sticking with Christianity, for example, it's the, it's the leadership, it's the Pope, it's the bishops and clergy who often really struggle against these things because it is tied in with their own, their power, which is very much a result of maintaining the status quo and keeping, you know, keeping things the way they've always been. There's so many interesting avenues that we could go down from this path. And I guess I would start by just saying, like you talked about divine inspiration and what do we mean by divine inspiration is a question that we should continue to ask. Same with the Quran being God's word, right? Literally God's word is what it's supposed to be. Do you think that you've experienced God's word or divine inspiration in your life? And if so, what, what, what do you make of it? What do you think that is? If you had to describe it? Mm. I don't know if I'd use the word inspiration, but I'd certainly been aware of my insignificance <laughs> in the sense of realizing that, yeah, there's some force outside myself, right? There's some power, a term God, Allah, supreme being, ultimate reality, but that, that there is, that there certainly is, yeah, I'm, I'm not fully in charge. I mean, that's part of what it means to be a, to be a human being. And so I think one of the ways that, that people have tended to address that fact in that situation is to use God language and, and uh, being touched by God. And I thought, I mean, I've, I've, I've had experiences where I would say that they are on one level, you're tempted to say, oh, what a coincidence or what a strange set of circumstances. But at other times I've been really sort of struck and moved by something that again is beyond me. You describe one of the, I guess very often I think I feel it most profoundly sort of in nature, like in natural settings where you suddenly, like, I like this time of year because it's very, the trees are bare and I like looking up at the trees and seeing the nests, the squirrels, these birds have made. And I sort of, sometimes I'll catch myself when I'm reading camp as soon as I look out the window right now, just thinking how many times I've walked and just all of a sudden I marvel at it. I'm It's a beautiful spot. I just feel nothing but um, appreciation and gratitude. I don't know where that comes from. 
but it's not something that I'm saying. And, you know, I think I'm going to go outside and be, be thankful. All of a sudden, it just sort of, and so I'd say that, I don't know if I'd use the word inspiration, but it's definitely grace. A possibly, as a Christian terminology, that may very well do it, depending on the mood I'm in, right? But, but it's just, yeah, it's just something that wells up. Maybe it wells up from within, maybe it doesn't come from outside, but it's certainly something that's, I'm not intentionally triggering or trying to do. Right. Cause it's, it's not really something that you can profit from. Like you, you don't get the sense that this, it's to my advantage to witness this beauty. It's mm-hmm. more like you're a part of the external reality, mm-hmm. which like the, the, even the idea that you could have that feeling is just so outlandish. Yep. Yeah. But there is an incredible profit in it because that glow lasts for a long time. I mean, sometimes on the drive home, I'll just marvel and I'll think, yeah, I mean, I could turn on Gary Parrish and listen to what he's saying about the Grizzlies right now, but no, I'm just going to sit here and quiet and sort of experience what I just experienced and let that last a little longer. So there's a real sense in which I think you're right. You're not, you don't go into it looking for expecting a benefit, but there is, but there is a real benefit in that. And it totally reorients, reorients one toward, and then you really, I, I, I can't really define it. Well, how am I different now than I was before? But I know I am. I think a lot of it has to do with just, yeah, the word gratitude just pops in my mind a lot when I'm sort of in that, in that zone. Why, why Islam? Like why, why is Islam in your view so significant with regard to these feelings that you would say align most closely to God's presence? Because I, I can think of almost any Eastern religion, Christianity, you name it, Judaism, they all talk about God is a sort of presence that you feel the idea of Kairos. I mean, it goes all the way back to Greek mythology, really. So why, why'd you choose Islam as your religion? No. Well, I'm not a Muslim. Just right, 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 right. Sorry. But, 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 but I will correct myself here and say that in some ways I am a Muslim with a, I strive to be a Muslim with a small, a lowercase M. And we may have talked about this in class before, but yeah, I'm, I am very attracted to Islam. I think it's a, I think it's on the right track. I think it's more on the right track in some ways than any other religion because, because of its essence, Muslims often refer to Islam as the religion of nature. And I think they're absolutely right about that. The word Islam means just submission, right? Submission to something greater than oneself. Yeah. They call it Allah, but you can, it can go by many different names. And they teach that throughout history, prophets have come and they've, they've taught the message of submission to people. And, and when you think about it, our lives, just being a human being is that we can do nothing but submit. We, we like to think we're in charge and that we're in control and that, and in a certain sense we are, we do have to take responsibility in our lives and we can, we make decisions and we ultimately in many ways shape who we become. But when all is said and done, many things are outside our control and outside of our, of ourselves. And uh, so to be a human being is to submit some force and you can fight against that force or whatever, again, or whatever you want to call it. But ultimately we're all Muslims in the sense that we, we have to, at the end of the day, maybe it's on our deathbed. We say, okay, you got me. I can't do anything about this. And maybe some people become Muslims only at the end of their lives when they realize I spent, I spent my life trying to fight this and ultimately there is no, there is no fight. 
So from that point of view, I think I, I, I deeply respect Islam and I, and I do think that the basic message of Islam is cuts right to the heart of what it is to be, be a human being. Yeah. Do you contemplate death a lot? I would say I contemplated, I think, I guess I've always been aware of mortality. I don't know if I think about it more as I've gotten older, maybe so, but I think it's something that I wouldn't say I obsess over or, but I'm aware, uh, maybe that's a better way for that. I'm aware of the, the temporality of life and the, and the fact that in larger scheme of things, a very limited amount of time to, to, to be here and to, to make whatever contributions we can. Which I, I think that's where gratitude comes from, right? Because gratitude, yep. it, it, gratitude wouldn't really have any purpose if it wasn't something that You're right. you could lose. Mm-hmm. But in you, you had something. Well, I, it, almost just kind of a, a joke. I think it'd be really nice if knowing your own insignificance made things matter less because it does in that moment, but then the next problem that rolls down the line, it, it is now the most important thing in the world and the cycle just never ends. Like it, it can diminish a little bit, but yeah, yeah. it's always there. No, you're right. There are constant adjustments, right? We're always, and again, that comes with the skin. We are always, we're living in the moment, but we're always thinking it. <laughs> we're living in the past. And so question is, how can we realize, be mindful of reality and, and our situations in the moment? And the, again, we're always, you're always kind of correcting, trying to remind yourself that this is about the true nature of things as opposed to anticipating or reliving. No. Do you believe in life after death? Hmm. I, that's a tough one. I'm not, I'd like to, but I have a hard time submitting to, <laughs> to that idea. Yeah. I just. Part of it is the, the kind of the, uh, the, uh, part of me that would like to have proof before I can slide off on something. And so again, I, I'm hopeful. I, I don't know if I believe in it. I would, I would hope that, well, maybe here's a way of putting it. I would hope that. One's experience is what, what, what I experienced throughout life, that when I breathe my last, that somehow that doesn't just end everything, that somehow what, what I've done, what I've learned will in whatever way continue on in some form or fashion that I have no idea what I, I don't, I'm not a believer in reincarnation or anything like that, but I don't know what, again, what that could possibly look like, but I do hope that that is the case. Yeah. It's interesting when you were talking about being in nature and feeling gratitude, feeling presence of divinity, I guess you could say, because when you die, there's the, there's the famous biblical phrase that I, I can't quite remember, but basically like for, from dust, you were created into dust, you will return something like that. Right. And so it's, it's interesting now that there's seems to be this whole idea of like heaven and hell and this whole discrepancy between the afterlife and what happens after death when it seems like in reality the quran the bible a lot of these important texts if we're talking about what they meant to people at the time 
we're more about the notion of submission. We're more about the notion of going back into nature when you die, like becoming part of this whole entire universe after death with almost no mention of sort of the fictional, you have a unicorn you ride around in heaven of, of contemporary thinkers. So do you, do you think there's any merit to that idea of, of being dust, being created of, of matter and then dying and becoming matter in a different form? I know you said you didn't, yep. you don't believe in reincarnation, but there is, there is some merit to that idea. No, I, there is some merit to that. And then, and there's also the fact that, yeah, that does happen, right? My wife wants to be composted <laughs> when she dies and I'm sure she'll somehow figure out how to do it, even if I'm not around to, to help make it happen. But, but yeah, there, there, it, there certainly is this idea of, again, this, the circle of life and renewal and the fact that, that things change, right? And maybe without getting too biblical on you, Paul has these interesting things to say about change and how the, the, the image of the, the seed, right? And how the seed drops into the ground, but you know, what rises out and it becomes as something very different than what it is. I think that's an interesting image and it's in some ways connects with what you're saying, right? That, that the idea that, you know, when our, our physical bodies deteriorate, and they are transformed into, into something else. And maybe, maybe that is the, maybe the physicists are right that there is some sense in which that, that, that that's the, the, the cycle, right? That that's the nature and that we've, that we've spiritualized that and tried to, to understand that and, and maybe present it in ways that are going to be more uplifting or hopeful for people. Maybe even get back to, to the earlier point, you know, maybe it's a way of trying to control people, right? The way that they think. And if, if you live a good life or do what we tell you to do, then you'll enjoy this, this place called heaven where all these great things are, will be possible. Yeah. Spiritual authority is definitely something that I find scary, but on the same side of that, Young, who I brought up earlier, and I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt, but both Young and Jonathan Haidt have this theory that human beings evolve to be religious and that we have to basically devote ourselves to something that we deem higher than ourselves, something that helps us answer the mystery within us. And it seems like in modern day, people have lost their belief in spiritual texts. So, and, and as science becomes more prolific and detailed, we're able to, to answer a lot of the questions that the Bible once gave us answers to. So we can start pointing things out in the Bible and the Quran that are wrong now. And I think that there's some correlation between that and the rise of secularism and the rise of governments and society. And the fact that when, for example, Russia decides that they're in a really dark place, same with Germany during Hitler's rise, but Russia is in a dark place in the Bolshevik revolution and Stalin rises up. And people flock to him. They flock to this, this God-like figure for answers to their questions, to their, to their fears that maybe God would have provided many, many years before. Mm -hmm. And obviously as a result of that, there's mass amounts of suffering, mass amounts of death. So do you see religion as something that must, per, must sustain in human evolution and human society? Or do you think that it's possible to reach a point where we don't need religion anymore? Hmm. 
I think religions, <clears throat> religions have come and gone, right? Of ways of being religious. But I do think that ultimately human structures and, uh, institutions and ingenuity, uh, as they continue to advance, will be able to take some of the, take the place of, of some of the role that religion has played historically, as you say, that this is, this has happened, we can see this, but ultimately I think human progress and ingenuity can only take one so far. And I think, again, it's because of that existential fact that, that of mortality, right? The fact that we all die and that, that you cannot, you cannot, no political system or economic system has been created that responds to that particular fact and the needs <laughs> that that fact creates, right? I mean, it's, they, they're, they're those needs and, and that fact have been addressed in different ways that we have not historically turned religious, right? But some of those things are still playing the same role that religion plays. And so I think there's always going to be, unless suddenly one day humanity becomes immortal, which I don't see happening. I, I don't, I, I think there's always going to be need for something that at this point in time, we're calling religion, right? For spirituality or something along those lines. And yeah, I just, I, I can't imagine a, something that will fill that, that will take the place of what religion tries to do and spirituality tries to do in, in addressing those questions. Somebody sent me a, a TikTok once that said that religion was an evolutionary coping mechanism for being self-aware that like we had to, we had to have a reason to justify our existence once we became aware of it, which I have no idea if that's true, but I thought it was really interesting. And I sort of asked the question that the Jimmy just asked, I, I asked myself and I thought, well, as long as we are attached at all to our own existence or to pursuing, to live life in a meaningful way, we will need religion. Mm -hmm. And which I guess sort of a Buddhist point, like the negation of that will mm -hmm. is when you stop needing religion. That's submission too. It is also submission. Yeah. But I think you're right. The, the self-awareness and self-reflection is, is the key as the truism goes, humans are the only being far as we know, aware of the fact that they're going to die. Right. And what does that, what does that create? You don't, animals mourn their dead animals, you know, will, will respond in ways that they recognize this, but, but they don't know that they are going to suffer that same fate and that, that fact, the fact that we know that and we can reflect on that and what it means for us creates a whole s set of existential questions that, that set us apart. Yeah. So interesting because I feel like at the macro level, when you look at human society, it's almost as if we're like those animals who don't know that they're going to die. Like people are constantly worrying about the next big political problem, the next big economic problem. Yeah. The pandemic is like this horrible, horrible thing that's going to like tear us all apart. No, but when you go to the micro level, there are people every single day who, whether you slip in some mud and your heart starts pounding, you're like, wow, that could have been bad. Yep. Like you, there are lots of moments on the micro level where you realize that death is, is knocking at your door. It, 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 it's, it's just, that is really interesting to me because we're looking at animals at the macro level. We don't, we can't really get inside of their heads, but mm -hmm. Seems to be something in relation to the idea of consciousness. Yep. With like, wig, I can't get inside your head. I can't get inside Aiden's head, but I 
No, just for being with you for the last 45 minutes that there's a lot going on up there. Do you think that consciousness has a pivotal role in Islam as well as the Bible? Do you think about the idea of consciousness a lot? Oh, yeah. No, I think that uh, certainly Islam teaches that people are, again, responsible for their own actions, right? That they, although they must submit to a force greater than themselves, that, that they, that the very act of submission is in itself a conscious act, right? That you can't, now you can live it. Now, some people, the mystics, the Sufis of Islam would say that, well, you can put yourself in state like many mystics. They would say that you actually become one with God. And so you, you cease to exist. Right. And, and in that way, consciousness also ceases, or it's a different type of consciousness, right? Maybe a different, different level of consciousness. And so, yeah, I think certainly Islam is, is a religion that in which one's, one must be conscious of who one is and what's place in the world in order to truly be a Muslim. Yeah. So you, you would say you're a firm believer in the idea of free will. Well, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm, I don't, yeah, I don't believe that, um, I've made enough bad choices in my life to know that, <laughs> that, you know, we are responsible for what, well, I've made a lot of good choices too, by the way, for the record, <laughs> but, but no, absolutely. I think that, that free will is a great, it's, it's a great gift. <laughs> can, can we talk about one of those good choices that you made in your life, which is Marriage. Can we, can we just talk about like, sure. can you tell me a little bit about how you met your wife and what falling in love is, is like, and how, if, if that influenced your view of religion at all either? Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, actually, Deb and I, we met, I guess we could say in a sort of quasi-religious context, we were both involved with a, a group called Maridol, which is a Catholic group. And we went to different parts of the world with Maridol for extended periods of time and out of the blue, we just happened to re, it was funny when I, I met her years before we got married, probably 10 years or so before we got married. And I remember just feeling something there that was special, but we never really, we, we sort of talked, didn't really know each other at all. And certainly it was nothing romantic involved, but then out of the blue years later, she happened to show up in the same place where I was at the same time. And, um, Speaking of free will, I said, okay, if this is ever going to happen, then kind of take the bull by the horns here, so to speak. So anyway, we ended up connecting and then we had a really long distance relationship for quite a few, three or three or four years until we eventually found ourselves back in, in New York in the same place and then decided to, to sort of pursue things and, and eventually get married. And so, and the, and that connection was again, very, uh, very real and strong right from the beginning. And I don't know how to read that. And I, I think I tend to, I'm the sort of person who tends to, I don't know how to put it. Maybe I pick up on vibes a lot or I kind of in, in not that I judge people quickly, but I can sort of, I often feel like I sense if there's a connection there with someone, I'll feel it right away. Like I feel with you guys right now. And so I felt that right away. And that, could you know, we've been married 30 plus years now. And I think what has sustained a lot of it is just our common, first of all, our respect for it, but also our, we have a certain commonality. We have a connection in terms of 
the way we see the world, the way we sort of the the way we try to live in the world, and and I think and we we have our differences. Some of them are sometimes pretty profound, but but those are relatively insignificant in the, in the big picture. So I think part of it you use the term love. I mean, yeah, we love each other, but I think more it's especially if you're in a relationship for a long period of time, there has to be something beyond love as that's off it's to sustain it that's going to, to continue on and i think in our case it's been again our shared backgrounds and interests and and our again our our, our respect uh, for each other and, and encouragement for for the other yeah yeah because that the vibe that you're talking about as as the idea of love as an emotion that vibe will will vary right throughout an entire mm-hmm. marriage over yeah. you know, over time and i guess i'm just I'm just curious, like, how, if you had to give advice for how, how to sustain a really healthy, good marriage for all those years, like you said, like shared interests and stuff, but do you think that religion has a big play in that? So like, like when you are with your wife, do you ever think about like the ideas that have been passed down to you from time in memoriam? Because it doesn't seem like the union between a man and a woman is anything unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I don't think it's religion. I don't think there's a religious element to it explicitly in, you know, in the sense of say, as you said, things we've been taught with organized religion. I, I think there's a spiritual element for sure, but I think, and I'll keep coming back to this term, I think probably what sustains it for me, I don't know if she would agree with this, but what sustains it for me is that sense of gratitude. I'm just thinking that I just consider myself fortunate. I mean, it could have been any number of other possibilities or directions of things could have gone, but this is the way they went. And Alhamdulillah, here we are. And it's worked out, worked out great. So I think that that maybe any, if I were to offer any advice, I think I'd say if you truly in a relationship, if you're in a relationship that you truly value and enjoy and want to endure, be sure to take the time to be thankful. It'll get you through yeah, really well. And take the chance maybe, right? Like if, think, if you think you could submit yourself to it, then maybe do it. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, absolutely. And yeah, be prepared to go places you didn't expect to go or do things you weren't, weren't intending to do. And that's part of the fun. So, so yeah, I think as time's gone on, I've tried to, and I actually do sometimes when tight moments, not just in that relationship, but generally speaking in my life, I just, at times I'll just sort of say under my breath, be thankful, be thankful, you know. Do you think there's any merit to the idea of like God's plan or things happening for a reason? Or do you think that where you are now, what you're grateful for in the present moment is a result of the choices that you've made and it's just by chance that this is the way it is. That's a tough one. I know I've made obviously one's choices influence where one goes and where one ends up, but I've just had too many kind of, I guess you could say coincidence or accidents happen to us to feel comfortable saying that, yeah, I, I got here by myself. I think it's just, I, I do think that there's, and I don't want to make it sound like again, there's God or someone who's just steering the ship and I, I think I'm, I'm doing these things. I really do think that people are responsible for, for much of 
what happens to them. But at the same time, I, I do think it's just, yeah, at, at times maybe things, the things happen that one does not actively pursue that all of a sudden get you off going in a different direction. I, before I came to Rhodes, I taught, I've been at Rhodes 26 years now. Before I came here, I taught at a college in New Jersey for uh, a number of years. In fact, I was up for tenure the year the college closed. So I taught at a school that actually shut down. Wow. And, and I was literally, literally, this is not exaggerated. I was the last person to turn off the lights at this college. And that's maybe a subject for another podcast, but, <laughs> but at any rate, I had to face the prospect that I may not be able to continue doing the thing I love to do, teaching. And so for a year I had to teach part-time adjunct at like four or five different schools in the New York area. And luckily, I mean, things just worked out. I ended up at Rhodes. I applied for seven jobs that year at the big annual meeting that we had when I thought most of the others, I thought, oh, just put my picture in the, in the, in the head. I'm perfect for this job. And none of them even contacted me. The only one that did was this place called Rhodes College. <laughs> I had never been to Memphis and I didn't think I was a particularly good fit for the job, but here I am. And just the great fortune I've had in terms of the, just the opportunities, the experiences I've had, the people I've met, students I work with is just, just remarkable. And, and again, it was just, you know. Thought you might want to say that's an accident or that you're just kind of being in the right place at the right time. Maybe so, but I don't know. Other things have happened along the way that suggest to me that there's, I don't know what you want to call it, karma or whatever, but it just seems like, again, that one can control what happens, but only so far. God takes care of tomorrow type of idea. Yeah, or whatever you want. God, perhaps fate, again, forces outside yourself. I'm curious, wh why did you think Rhodes wasn't going to be a good fit for you? Well, it's just the job description. You know, when I looked at, when I read the job descriptions, there were two or three of them, and one of them even said Bible, Islam, Quran. I'm thinking, hey, here I am. And then I didn't get an interview. And then Rhodes was more, less, less clear a good fit the way it was written up. And so I didn't, I didn't really think that was, you know, much would happen on that front, but has Rhodes changed a lot since you first came here? Yeah, no, it has quite a bit. I think obviously new buildings are part of it, but I think the, well, two, two things I think that stick out are, first of all, the student body is much more diverse in every way in terms of geographically, racially, economically, et cetera. I think that's a significant change. And then the other big thing I think is the the close ties with Memphis that have been established in the past probably 10, 15 years have really been a significant shift. And also I think to the betterment of the, of the institution and the city, hopefully. So yeah, those, those are, those are two, two large changes in my mind. I have an odd question, but were you at Rhodes when Amy Coney Barrett was at Rhodes? No, no, I wasn't. Now she graduated a few years before I came. Yeah. Okay. I thought maybe that would be like very similar yeah. period of time. Yeah, no, a little bit, a little bit before me. So when you, when you first came to Rhodes, can you describe kind of like the difference that Rhodes had, like the different vibe you might say that Rhodes had when you first were here? Well, you gotta remember where I was coming from too, right? I came from a place that closed. I mean, this is no exaggeration. The last year, the name of the place was Uppsala College, just outside of Newark, New Jersey. 
And the last year was incredibly painful. I mean, it was just very, very difficult. And because we were preparing to close, but we had to stay open. So we're encouraging students, helping them to transfer to other schools, but trying to keep them in the class. It was just, the Dean said, it was like trying to walk two, in two directions at the same time. It was just very, very difficult. And so I remember one of the saddest days was we had a faculty meeting and the Dean got up and said, I hate to have to say this, but we have reached a point where you are now going to have to bring your own toilet paper to campus. I mean, that's how bad it was. Wow. And so, you know, it was really, really grim. And so we got through that. So then I taught for adjunct for a year in the New York area. And then this job came along and I just remember my very first faculty meeting, I'm sitting there and people, faculty members start complaining about the weirdest shit. I mean, I just couldn't believe what they were. Oh, this is it. This isn't working. I'm not really happy about this. I remember thinking to myself, you know, on the one hand, I'm thinking, and I died and went to heaven here with this place. They'd be talking about them down like them. And I hear all this bickering about all this kind of this, this insignificant stuff, especially where I was coming from. And I thought, wow, this is, I'm in a totally different world here. So on a personal level, it was really, really, really odd. And back then the, there were, I remember my first few years, there were several students, there were a number of students who were always trying to buck the system. And so they would, this is before, you know, we had email and everything, but nowhere near social media didn't exist, but there were, there were these uh, ways that students could communicate with each other online. I think they called it the forum or something. And uh, there were just a handful of students who would just get on and kind of try to incite and get people all riled up, but everything. And we said, yeah, we still have that. That hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> and now just more people have access <laughs> here. <laughs> but you used to drive the folks crazy, the administration trying to crack down. And then they tried to sense, basically shut people, several people down that there was big uproar on the part of students. You can't do that. That's censorship. You just kind of go on like that. It was really, it was really funny. Yeah, so I'm hearing that Rhodes has not changed much <laughs> the past 26 years. <laughs> have you have you heard of Yik Yak? The... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've okay. heard of Yik Yak. I've never been on it, but I guess it's been around for a number of years because I remember there was a real big controversy a few years ago with, I don't think you, you guys would have been here at school yet, but there were some racial incidents that were related to Yik Yak that were really very, very divisive to the, you know, to the campus community. But this was all, this was something that Rhodes controlled, though. So they were actually cutting people off. It was part of the, uh, the, the computer system. So students were communicating with each other on, on, on that level. And so that's why they, they pulled the plug or they, they barred certain people from it. <laughs> that's so interesting because you, you think about like what academia is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this place where like free speech can be mm -hmm. said and like everybody's going to share their opinions on everything and you're going to get to the most logical answer. And then a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds get online and just... <laughs> harass each other <laughs> that's that is really interesting do you have any friends on the faculty because i've seen you with some of the faculty members quite a lot and I, i'm just kind of curious how that works yeah i mean we have yeah it's funny since covid you see fewer people and less socializing but Rhodes is a small enough place faculty's under 200 people so you really do get to know no folks well, and especially people who are from your era, people who came in at the same time tend to maintain those, those relationships. And so there, there, there are different types. I mean, there are some relationships that are more professional, others that are personal and others that are sort of a combination. Like Steve McKenzie across the hall here, he and I have collaborated a lot on 
publications and books and things. And so we're kind of have that part of our relationship, but then also we, we socialize, especially when we're out at conferences and that sort of thing. And then I have other friends who are more, they work in different areas. Mike, Michael Rosa from history is a real good friend of mine. And we spend a lot of time with him and socialize quite a bit. So, so yeah, that's one of the nice things about working in a small school like Rhodes, the fact that you get to know the students very well on a, on a, a more personal level and, and then faculty colleagues as well in other other areas and other disciplines beyond the one that you're, that you're working in. Do you have any more questions? Cause I have, I have one big nuclear bound note, but I have to drop at the end. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, I'll, I'll just uh, get back to Islam if, if that's all right. I've, sure. I've just always been really curious about the vibe of it. Like what, what is it about a mosque or Islamic art or the doctrines that gives you this sense of submission it in, in in, in a way that you can relate to or that you enjoy. Hmm. Islam, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all. Islam is a very simple religion in, in the sense that, again, the message is very clear and right? it's very direct. Even the, the way that one expresses oneself as a, as a Muslim is, is very simple in terms of the famous five pillars of the faith and the way that you do that. The prayer ritual is, is not very long and again, not as elaborate as say a Christian ritual is. So I think that's part of the appeal for many people is that it, it com doesn't come with a lot of kind of excess baggage that sometimes some, some religions can, can have. And it's also a, a religion that's not, it's an iconic. It doesn't, you don't have statues. You don't have really like representational artwork of human beings in that. So it's kind of stripped of that, which again, kind of simplifies things a little bit. And, but it really is, I think the message primarily, again, this, this notion of submitting yourself to something or someone outside yourself, which again, I think is highly relatable for people, if they reflect on their situations and their, their human condition and realize that despite their best efforts not to, to, to avoid that, that in fact, that, that is really part and parcel of what it is to be a, be a human being. That makes a lot of sense. And the rituals are so stark and powerful too, like with the, uh, the bowing, the prostrating. Yep. You know, mm -hmm. and the way that the voices sound in the morning called a prayer. I don't know any of the terms, but it's so. Allah Yeah. Allah it's so powerful. So then, yeah, I, yep. I can understand. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is that, that's pretty similar to like Buddhist sayings, like Om and et cetera. Right. And I, I know, I know that a lot of the sayings have a certain way of getting from the back of the mouth to the front of the mouth and working like every single sound is, is that similar to Allah Akbar? Is that, is it, does it encompass every single sound in the mouth? Uh, not all of the sounds, the hardest sound in Arabic for English speakers is, well, there are a couple of them, but probably the hardest one is the letter Ain, which is so you got to say it from the back of your throat. And then the Arabic has only three vowels. So A, I, U, so it might be those three uh, sounds. And those are really hard for, for non-Arabic speakers to, to say they're gutturals is what they're, what they're called. So that's a hard one. And also, which is like the French R in the back of the back of the throat, but Allah Akbar doesn't contain all of the, the letters, but that's the kind of the, probably the most well-known phrase in Islam for, for non-Muslims. I'm just so interested in the, the language 
difference between Greek and Hebrew and then on the other side, Arabic, because they are pretty different. And uh, the way that like language can convey a certain meaning, it just, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like why certain words are how they are mm -hmm. in Arabic, but I, that's probably too big of a question to really answer. Well, Arabic of the Quran is in Arabic and part of the reason why Muslims say that the Quran is not, it, that it can be found only in Arabic, that any translation is just interpretation is because it rhymes. And so it's, it, you can't duplicate that in another language, right? So the first, like, here's the first chapter of the Quran. Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Rahman, Rahim, Maliki, Yom Adin, Iyaka, Na'budu, Iyaka, Nista'een, Ihtina, Sarat al-Mustaqeem, Sarat al-Aydina, Amta alayhim, Ghayri ma thudubi alayhim, Wallah dali, Sadaq al-Azim. Hear all those eems, eems, eems. The whole Quran is like that, not with that same sound, but the, the, all those eems are the end of, of each verse. And every chapter of the Quran, heart 14 of them, every chapter, every verse in every chapter ends with the same sound. And so it's poetry. Right. And so you really can't recreate that in it. You can try, but it's going to be ugly. It's really not going to work, right? And so that's why Muslims say it's only the Arabic of the Quran. That's truly the Quran because that sound is a part of what, it, of what the text is. And according to Muslim belief, this was delivered to God, from God to the prophet, uh, Muhammad. And so that is part of, that's God's speech, literally for, for Muslims. Do we know anything about Muhammad prior to the creation of the Quran? Like, was he a poet? He was a businessman. Actually, he was, according to the traditional biography, he was, uh, worked in, in, as a merchant and probably traveled a little bit. And then at about the age of 40, he had this, this life altering and world altering experience of what came to be the, the what his followers believed to be the revelation of the, of the Quran. How do you think the Quran was able to spread so wildly, so quickly? I mean, it's, it's still the most quickly growing religion in the world. Oh yeah. Fastest religion, fast growing religion by far. In the next, by 2050. Christianity and Islam are the two largest religions in the world. By 2050, Christianity will have grown by less than one-tenth of a percent of where it is now, but Islam will have grown by close to 20%. That's how fast it's growing. Yeah. And people would always say, well, it's, it's differing birth rates in these countries, but that also has something to do with the religion, doesn't it? Like, I, yeah. I, it's, yeah, it's cultural and religious. Yeah. yeah. But why did it spread so quickly? Well, if you ask a Muslim, of course, the, the answer is, well, that was God's will. It, it demonstrates that this is truly God's will. And, but you can look at certain non-theological explanations that have value, maybe more value, such as of the technique that they used, the strategy they adopted that made it much more effective and likely that people would, would embrace the religion or at least allow it to, to spread into other parts of the world. I mean, to get a little Machiavellian for a moment, I mean, like, like Machiavelli, he has a problem with the Christian or Catholic church because of the crusades and all of their missionary work, quote unquote, that they were really just trying to get people to submit to their religion. But on the other side of that, like Islam, people can easily misinterpret submission as a forcing Islam onto people. And if you don't say that Allah is God, right, isn't that what they... Allah is the only God. La ilaha illallah. Mm -hmm. If you don't say that, God. then you will be put to death. Right? Is, is, yeah. is that? Well, that's, the, yeah, that's sort of the, the non-Muslim, the Western kind of narrative about how Islam spread. But in fact, it was 
it was much more, again, more of a carefully laid out strategy where they would give, they would give people options that they would go into these areas, non-Muslim areas. The Muslim authorities would say, okay, you can convert to Islam if you choose to do so, accept you, or you can keep your religion, especially if you're a Jew or a Christian, as long as you pay us a tax and we will protect you so that you will not be harmed by anyone else. And many Jews and Christians preferred to do that. And Muslims preferred them to do that too, because they had more money coming in than coffers. And then only if those first two were not uh, accepted, then they would fight. And very rarely did that happen. So actually Islam spread fairly peaceably. And interestingly, and many people don't know, they'll realize this, especially in the Western part of the, what became the Islamic empire, Christians were happy to accept these Muslim leaders because they were actually faring better under Islamic rule than they were under their fellow Christians who were much harsher on them, the Byzantines. And so Christians in some ways welcomed, welcomed Islam and paid the taxes and then therefore actually profited by not having to, to live under the Byzantines. So it's really kind of an interesting irony there. So is Islam, uh, less punitive than Christianity? Less punitive in the sense of in its in its dogmatic dogmas and beliefs. I mean, Islamic law is law is an important part of Islam, as it is in in many religious traditions. I think people non-Muslims tend to have the idea of the kind of the strict punishments of Islam regarding things like amputation of the hands for for theft or stoning for adultery, that type of thing. And in fact, in very few Muslim majority countries is Islamic law, the law of the land. It's really just in family law where you see Islam use. So things like divorce, inheritance, marriage, Islam becomes important. But most of, of the Islamic majority world uses civil law for criminal law. And so they don't. So in a handful of like Saudi Arabia, parts of Sudan, you see Islamic law across the board, but it actually is quite, quite exceptional that that happens. Right. And I think it's obviously pretty, pretty foolish to draw a direct line between that and the religion, just as it would be to say mm -hmm. medieval Christianity was yeah. the real Christianity. It doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. There's often a double standard, right? That non-Muslims tend to, it's a very common ploy on the part of people to, when it comes to talking about different religions, to compare the worst part of the other person's religion with the best part of your religion and say, oh, you see, why would anyone want to be one of you? Look at us. We'll go, we do. It's, it's very, very common. To Are you, do you know who Sam Harris is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so he, he has a whole problem with Islam I and mean, he has a whole problem with religion in general, yeah. but he always used to the case of Islam to make his point about the problems with religion, mm -hmm. specifically the like religious dogmas inherently bring the worst out of us because it's so tribal and it's it's so fixed on old teachings that are so harsh and it's so is his argument pretty much just invalid because it's based on a misnomer about islam well you know he, what he's engaging in there and many people do is what what's often referred to as essentializing right that you take something that maybe some people within islam or a particular group engage in and you say okay, that represents the whole group, right? And then this, this is what this group stands for when in fact, the, it's much more nuanced than that, right? That they're sure there may be people just like there are Christians who misrepresent or 
present a form of Christianity that isn't mainstream, well, the vast majority of Christians will reject that. And that's true with, on, on the side of Islam. So Harris and who's the uh, Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, folks like that. Harkin, uh, was it? Richard Hawkins? Richard Hawkins, no, yeah. <clears throat> the God Delusion, I think he wrote that. Yeah, they often engage in essentializing, and I, you see it all the time. I mean, I talk at various churches and groups around here. There's one church here in Memphis that I've talked to a number of times, and there's this guy there who I know, he's always going to, after he's going to come up to me and say, yeah, but, you know, it's always going to be, but you didn't talk about this, and you didn't say that this is what Muslims are really like, and no matter how many times have the conversation, it just doesn't sink into the room. It says, well, no, okay. Some Muslims must do that, but you can't therefore then generalize and say they represent all of Islam. Yeah. It's also interesting because what, what are you left with if you take away religion from society, right? I mean, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, but because people are religious, like that tribalism isn't going to go away just because you take away religion. Mm -hmm. like. Even like you can imagine a perfectly peaceful atheist utopia, just like you can imagine a perfect Islam utopia, but either way, people are going to end up hurting each other. Well, look at the divisions in American society today that have nothing to do with religion and everything to do with politics or attitudes toward COVID. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's just human beings are always going to form tribes and those tribes are going to, you know, be at each other's at this throats sometimes. So. Do you have any, anything else? Or? No, I think go quickly. All right. Let's get me clear. So the, the last question is just, uh, what do you think is the meaning of life? Mm. I don't know if I can answer what the meaning of life is because I think it differs from person to person. And so. I'd be reluctant to speak sort of universally about here's what life means. I think so much of it depends on one's own experiences, right? But I think I, I feel a little more comfortable talking about the purpose of life, right? Or what the response to life maybe even, right? What, and, and again, and here too, maybe we can't generalize too much, but I do think that one of the, um, or the, the, the purposes or the, the, I don't know, in some ways the, an opportunity that life presents is to reflect, right? For us to think and think deeply and carefully about what, <laughs> what this experience of life is all about, right? What, and, and the answer is going to be different for each one of us. But I, I do believe that, and again, I realize that I don't mean to trivialize, you know, the fact that some people suffer horribly and that, that there's injustice in the world. But I do think that each person, whatever their circumstances, if they think and reflect enough about their experiences in their lives, that they cannot kind of come back to that, that term I've been using quite a bit. I think they can find something that they can be thankful for, you know, and appreciative of, and to realize that it's not perfect. Things could be better, but still this thing or these things in my life that really special to me, they're meaningful. They give me life. And I think that that, that's something that I think we can all strive to do regardless of, of our circumstances. And again, I think we need, we all need to be working toward rooting out injustice poverty and all those, you know, horrible social, social ills. But, but I think 
probably my hope is that the world would be a better place maybe if people did take some time to to try to again reflect and identify the, on those things that that are um that are special important and ultimately aspects of their existence that that they are they're thankful for and appreciative of Awesome. Well, thanks for a great discussion. Sure. No, this was really a really interesting conversation. This was terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Links on Life. For me, today's conversation was an exercise in simplicity and gratitude. And these were virtues that are sort of revealed throughout the conversation as we move through topics from philosophy, religion, religious dogma, onto marriage and the Rhodes community. And even though, even though these are obviously very different topics, the conversation always came back to appreciating what is evidently true about life and not overstretching yourself to anything else. I was particularly interested to learn about Islam from Dr. Kaltner. He's a very, very learned man on the topic, and I am not. I really knew nothing about the religion other than some, some of the basic aesthetics of it and some of the most fundamental tenets. But I really came into the episode hoping to understand what the appeal is to so many people around the world. And Dr. Kaltner is uh, sort of, uh, I, I suppose, revelation that it's about the simplicity and the devotion to God and nothing else, no iconography, no extraneous information, really showed me why it is such a beautiful religion and why it's so powerful. It was particularly powerful for me to hear him recite verses from the Quran, which are obviously poetic and 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 repetitive, and that adds to the sort of devotional aspect of it in a way that you also see to some degree in the Bible, but in, in any uh, re religious text, but especially in the Quran. And that, uh, that, that really opened some doors for me, and I think I'll be thinking about it for a long time. I hope that uh, all you listening enjoyed that segment of the podcast, and I hope that maybe it can help you think about world religion in, in that same vein. I also was obviously really really happy to hear about the Rhodes community uh, and the way that it's changed over time. I think uh, Dr. Kaltner's story about how essentially spoiled Rhodes seemed compared to the, the college he had previously taught at that was that had fallen on hard times was really important to hear. It also sort of cemented the message of gratitude and made me feel more connected to the community in a sense that I could see sort of the continuities and changes over time. Um, so there's an AP world history term for you if you took that in high school. But anyway, I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And I'm sure as much as Jimmy did. And, uh, I hope that you tune into the next episode. Hopefully it can be as good as this one was. All right. Thank you.